Well, in the past seven days, I found myself conducting two, uh, two memorial services at our church. These memorials often include times of remembrance of the lost loved one, which is also a very special time. It's also quite challenging when you think of it, because how do you define a person? How do you summarize who a person is? How do you capture the essence of their identity? If someone had to summarize your life with 500 words, what would they say? We often associate people with their values, their likes, their dislikes. This person loved the mountains, was a a ski bum. This person loved In-N-Out, had it every week. We think of a person's behavior and the idiosyncrasies that set them apart. This person couldn't stand unclean teeth and brush three times a day. We think of what, when we think of what makes a person, we think of often their hobbies, their activities. This person was a, a Taekwondo black belt, or this person was always on the hunt for some treasure they could resell on eBay. And then, of course, a person's job or occupation forms a major part of how we think of them. And this person worked in the same pharmacy for 30 years, or this person was a truck driver and logged over a million miles. But perhaps what defines us most is our relationships. Husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, sibling, friend. We all exist in a web of relationships, and this is a major part of our identity. This person has eight siblings, all sisters. This person was married to the same spouse for 65 years. All of these aspects and more come together to define us and set us apart with our identity. Now, a lot of our identity is ingrained into us. I think we all know the impact of childhood and forming one's identity. Much of our identity is not chosen, but impressed upon us, inherited from childhood. For example, my wife, growing up with a Korean mother, largely shaped her identity concerning food, culture, and language. And you say that that becomes a huge part of who you are, right? So you have all these things, ethnicity, language, gender, relationships, values, beliefs, hobbies, activities, jobs, careers, environment. They all come together and they form our identity. And that being said, though, something drastic happens when you become a Christian. You gain a new identity, one that supersedes, redefines, and replaces your old identity. True salvation represents a complete transformation of who you are. It's a complete identity shift. Not everyone experiences this. Some people are more like cultural Christians. To them, you know, becoming a Christian, it's not that big of a deal. It's just, you know, something they they tack on to their identity. It's like joining a club. Christianity is like something they do. It's it's a little part of them. It's, It's part of their life, but it's not their life. It's not what defines them. Scripture would challenge whether that person is really born again. Speaking of, that's the term Jesus used to describe salvation. Salvation is as radical as a new birth. It's a complete redefinition of who you are, a total reorientation of your life, your values, your beliefs, all according to one person, Christ Jesus. There's no small deal. That coming to faith in Christ does not necessarily mean a total obliteration of your personality. For example, if you like chocolate before salvation, you can still like chocolate after salvation. But coming to Christ does mean you take every single aspect of yourself, your likes, your dislikes, your friends, your associations, your, your job, your hobbies, even your relationships, and you lay them at the feet of Jesus. You submit to him what aspects of your old self can come with you. 
into this new life. This is part of forsaking all to follow Christ. It means if any part of your life doesn't accord with him and his ways, it can't come with you. It can't be a part of your identity anymore. So, for example, while the Lord has nothing against chocolate, he does have something against drunkenness. So that can no longer be a part of your identity. He's got a problem with sexual morality, with greed, with dishonoring your parents. These can no longer identify you. Instead, he's a big supporter of generosity, of using edifying speech, of controlling your anger. These must identify you now. None of these things may have characterized you before salvation, but but they do now because you have been redefined as a person according to Christ. That's what salvation is. If you think this sounds radical, well, you're right. But this is what Jesus himself demanded of all true disciples. If you want to follow him, you have to first deny yourself. This is what he was talking about. It's coming to an end of yourself, realigning with him. And scripture all over teaches that true discipleship is not merely a a reformation of your old ways. It's not about adding a little Jesus to your life. It's not about following a new set of rules. No, true Christianity is a death, burial, and resurrection. It's a complete transformation. And when you come to Christ, you die. Your, your whole old self dies. It's gone. A new self arises, one that's made in the image of Christ. So don't think of Christianity like remodeling a house where, you know, I become a Christian now. It's like moving some walls, adding new carpet, repainting. No, salvation is about taking the old house down to the foundation. In fact, let's get rid of the foundation too. The whole thing needs to be redone, rebuilt according to this new pattern, the pattern of Christ. And it's this newness that then guides and directs our daily Christian living. Because the Lord builds into us new desires for righteousness as well. Jesus taught this as the essence of Christian living. And so did his apostles. For the Lord wanted us to know, fully know, and live out the implications of our new identity in Christ. And we're going to receive some more of that instruction on on the implications of our new identity from one of his apostles this morning, namely the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. So you can open your Bibles now as you typically do. This time to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And here in chapter 3, as we've already got into it, we're finding Paul is getting practical and turning his attention to the essence of Christian living. Here Paul explains quite a bit about the foundation of Christian living and then the ethics of Christian living. Christianity is not about just keeping some rules. It's about a new relationship with Jesus Christ that completely redefines us. And that relationship is brought out in verses 1 through 4, which involves our own death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. In him, we have died to the old self. We have risen to the new. And because that's true, well, we should live differently. See, it, The basis of our living is, is our new heavenly identity in Christ. And our ethics stem from that. And speaking of verses 5 through 7 then, We get our first taste of what those ethics look like. 
you know, founded on Christ. Our, our new identity comes with new beliefs, new values. That should translate into new behavior. You get a little taste of that in verses 5 through 7. Now, we're into verses 8 through 11 for this morning. And here, Paul, you know, he essentially reiterates both points. The foundation of Christian living and the ethics of Christian living. You know, to be honest, verses 1 through 17 here in chapter 3, that they're all really meant to be read together. He is making and restating a couple of major points throughout. Now, we're, we're breaking this down into smaller pieces that we might think deeply on them. But it means we should expect some repetition. And this is pretty much the case today with verses 8 through 11. We really just get another dose of the ethics of Christian living and the foundation of Christian living. But listen, that's okay because this is something we need to hear again and again and again until we we master it. In fact, the way Paul puts it here in verses 8 through 11, although we've we've heard it before, nonetheless, the way he puts it here is is most helpful. And I'll tell you what we're going to learn today from these verses should be Christianity 101. This should be like the basics of, of spiritual growth. Yet, without exaggeration, the vast majority of Christians that I talk to have just never heard of this. They don't know about this. They're not, they don't understand it. They're a bit clueless. And perhaps this explains their frustration or stagnation when it comes to spiritual growth. But let's see if we can add some more clarity with our time today. Colossians 3, 8 through 11. Let me read this passage now and you can listen along. Colossians 3. 8 through 11. He continues and says in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, slander, malice, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Well, like I said, what he says here, it doesn't differ all that much from what he said in verses 1 through 7. It's it's a second look at the ethics of Christian living, a second look at the foundation of Christian living. But given how important these are, We're just going to take that and run with that. Keep that simple. So let's begin with number one, a second look at the ethics of Christian living. Plain enough, a second look at the ethics of Christian living. And this comes from verse eight. He says, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. You hear in verse eight, Paul gives a second list of vices to put off. It's Much like the list in verse 5, although verse 5 focused on sexual sins, verse 8 focuses on social sins. However, these lists are parallel in many ways. Both lists mention five sins, ranging from outward deeds to inward desires. Verse 5 started with the outward deeds of immorality and impurity, if you recall. But these spring from, he says, passion and evil desire. But the wellspring of all of these is greed. It's the desire of the flesh to want more than God has given, to to take more than God has given, that which doesn't belong to you. That's something we found out last time, the root of sexual sin. 
Now here in verse 8, we have a similar progression, just in reverse order. He's going to begin this time with the innermost desire and see how it proceeds and progresses to the outer deed, the expression of sin. Now, all of these must be put aside. So let's look at these kind of one by one. Verse 8, it starts with anger. Now, this word for anger in the Greek is very interesting. It's derived from the same word for desire. This word speaks of coveting something. You're reaching out for something, trying to obtain something. It's actually not all that different from the word for greed back in verse 5, which was the root sin, heart desire behind sexual sin. So where you want something you don't have, something that doesn't belong to you, you're reaching out for it. And you can probably sense how this word became later associated with anger. Because when you think about it, what leads us to anger? How does it arise? It starts when you want something. You desire some object, some circumstance, some outcome, just something. But you're frustrated. You can't have it. You don't get it. And so you lash out. Anger describes the, resp- the response of frustrated desires. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. And that's where you are not seeking your will at all, but entirely God's will. And when his will is frustrated, well, you come to share the, the same divine displeasure towards sin. And that's how we can be told in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. But, I think we know that most often that is not the case. And most often being fallen, we we don't want what God wants. Our desires are not his desires. In the heat of the moment, we're not longing for perfect righteousness. No, we, we want our sin. We're rebelling against God's desires. And when our selfish desires are not met, we're displeased, we're grieved, we're frustrated. And the result is a, a sinful anger. That's how it starts, some, something unmet, some unmet desire. That's how it starts, but that's not where it ends. If you allow that anger to fester in your heart, it will spread. And Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, yet do not sin. The next verse, verse 27, he says, and, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Satan knows that our inner displeasure, it's like a little ember of rebellion against God. And he only has to blow on it to fan the flames of our rage and and greater sins will result. Didn't Jesus himself identify anger as the the first step to murder? It is, right? That's the first step. You don't always take all the steps. I hope you don't always take all the steps, but it's the first step to murder in Matthew chapter 5. The apostle Paul agrees seeing the progression from anger to wrath. This word speaks more of a, the sudden outburst of anger. I mean, you've seen an ember that's very hot, but it has no flame. But if you blow on it just a little, it, it flares up. And likewise, our anger can build and grow under the surface and just takes a little trigger. Something triggers us, and it's going to come out as a, a fiery outburst of wrath. What comes next would then be malice. This is another very interesting word. It's just derived from the Greek word for bad or evil. 
Malice is basically the desire to do evil to others or to see evil fall upon others. It describes one bent on seeing harm fall on others. It could be physically, verbally, emotionally, whatever. It's just evil intent. Now, my Italian grandmother often spoke of the evil eye. It's a folklore in many cultures, but it refers to a curse that's brought on someone by a malicious glare or a malevolent glare. Basically, when one person stares at another person with evil intent, they can put a curse on them. And so some Italians even wear like a little charm or amulet to protect against the evil eye. Now, we know that no one has any supernatural power in their eyes to curse other people just with a glance. But that said, you know, the evil in one's heart that's behind those eyes is very real. And we all have the capacity to, to wish evil upon others. You know, sometimes this evil intent can come out as physical abuse. But Paul goes on to focus on the verbal side of things. And so next he mentions slander. Slander, it's the Greek word blasphemia, which we get the word blasphemy from. I know we, we mostly associate that word with God, speaking evil or falsely of God, but it was also used to speak evil of other people. It just referred to evil speech. We're talking destructive, wounding words. Every single one of us, no exceptions, has been sinfully angry with another person. Now, hopefully we were restrained from physical violence, but I can guarantee that Every single one of us has at one point lashed out at another with with a verbal dagger. Anger and wrath turn into malice. Malice turns into slander. I mean, you may not hit the person, but you've got to make them pay somehow for frustrating your desires. And so verbal cuts will will suffice and you tear them down. And this slander then goes hand in hand with, he says, abusive speech in verse 8. This, this word is a combination of the term for filthy and the term for speaking. It's just you know, filthy speech, inappropriate language, vile talk, shameful words. It's the words we sling to, to tear others down to make them feel bad. And such language reveals the, the darkness and the dark sin that still resides in all of our flesh. It's like Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty four, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. We learned back in verse 5 that the Lord takes sexual sin very seriously, and he also takes sins of the tongue very seriously because they can do so much damage. You recall James 3.6, where he said, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. And the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. James then goes on to say in verse 9, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. He says, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And that's true for those in Christ, for those who have been given a new identity, it, it shouldn't be this way anymore. And hence, Paul likewise tells us here in verse 8 regarding these, these sins, all of them, just to put them all aside, to, to lay them all aside. These sins of the tongue and their underlying 
root causes must be put away. We need to repent of both the expressions of sin, but also just the, the underlying heart desires that, that gave rise to them. You know, this really, though, gets at the distinctiveness of Christian ethics. We saw that back in verse 5. We're called to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. But, you know, right living along Christ's way addresses not just our behavior, but also the hidden desires of the heart. Ethics, or how you live among non-Christians, is all about behavior. It's just about behavior. I mean, so long as you don't do bad things, you're not a bad person. You're a good person. So long as you don't murder or commit adultery or steal or say really, really bad things to someone, you're good. You're doing good. But, you know, the heart that produces all those things is left unaddressed. And so what results is just a Pharisee, someone who looks holy and righteous or good on the outside, But meanwhile, their hearts are still full of greed, jealousy, anger, malice, slander, lust, evil desire. This person is not good. Sin rules their heart. And Jesus himself taught that that true righteousness must be found not just in your hands and your feet and your tongues, but also in your hearts and your thoughts and intentions. I mean, didn't Jesus teach it's not enough to just not commit adultery? You also must not even look with lust at another. That's equivalent to adultery in your heart. And then he say, it's not enough to just not murder someone. You must not even get angry with someone, sinfully angry with someone. That's equivalent to murder in your heart. And the point is, true Christian or biblical ethics, it addresses all of our unrighteous behavior, yes, but it also goes to the desires of the heart from which they spring. And if you want to grow in your Christ-likeness or your right living, you've got to deal with those as well. And so just to apply this list in verse 8, like we did back with verse 5, do you have a problem with your tongue? Are you characterized by sinful speech, abusive language, and slander? Do you tend to tear others down around you with your words? Well, that's sin. And I hope you're convicted by that and and you want to repent, turn, change. I don't want to be like that anymore. That's good. How do you change? Well, some people might say, well, let's have a swear jar. You know, anytime someone swears or maybe just says something mean, they put like money into the jar. And that might keep your profane language in check, but it's going to do nothing about the heart from which that language came. So you also have to ask yourself, Now, why am I so angry with this person? Why do I want to tear them them down with words? What am I trying to get behind this? What what circumstance, what outcome, what thing am I really after here that they're frustrating me with? And then you have to ask yourself, you know, is this thing, is this thing I'm after, is that God's will or just my will? Is this a righteous desire or a selfish desire? And just give you like a spoiler alert, 99 out of 100 times, it's just a selfish desire. You're going to find you're angry with that person, not because you're concerned with God's will, but just your own. But if you can get this far in searching out the thoughts and intentions of your own heart, well, you found what you must crucify to truly change. This is the indwelling sin that you must kill. 
Well, Paul says here in verse 8, it's, it's just parallel to what he says in verse 5, but there he used a stronger word picture for how we, we deal with the sin that remains, and it's to kill. He says, put to death our sin, the sin that remains. Put to death or mortify slander and abusive speech. Yes, we need to do that. But you also better mortify the, the anger and the wrath and the malice in the heart as well. And in turn, you replace those with righteous desires and righteous responses. You know, Paul puts this perfectly over in Ephesians 4. If you want to see it, you can just flip back to Ephesians 4. You know, Ephesians and Colossians are so parallel. In Ephesians 4, he goes into more detail about what that looks like. How, how do you replace the wicked intentions of the heart with, with righteous He says in Ephesians 4, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear, put away unwholesome speech, put on edifying speech down in verse 31 of Ephesians 4. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, what? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's how we deal with people who, who frustrate our desires. So this is a second look at the ethics of Christian living. We've seen it before, but it's so important to be reminded that the distinct way Christ calls us to live, it's got to be inside out, not just out, but, but inside out. And we will change on the inside as, as we're renewed day by day, renewing our minds, setting our minds on things above, keeping our identity in Christ in the front of our minds. In fact, speaking of that, why don't we move into number two, a second look at the foundation of Christian living. You can go back to Colossians 3. And just kind of a redo, right? A second look at the ethics of Christian living. Now, what we get in verses 9 through 11, it's really just a second look at the foundation of Christian living. As Christians, we are to live a certain way. We are to abide by a new ethic, a lifestyle, yes. But that's not because we're trying to become righteous or enter heaven. We live this way because we've already been, by God's grace, made righteous and, and granted heaven as a free gift. We need to see this again and again. Just, this is the foundation. He starts in verse 9, back in Colossians 3. He says, do not lie to one another. And this is a fitting transi- transition from the sins of the tongue mentioned in verse 8. Not that it's okay to lie to people outside the church, but especially as the family of God, we should not be lying to one another. Either in speech or in practice, we should not be two-faced. And that characterizes our old God, the devil, the father of all lies, and not our new heavenly father, the God of truth. But then Paul says, since. You see that? Do not lie to one another, since. And with this word, he's moving into an explanation of the behavior called for. And this certainly reaches back beyond verse 9, back into verse 8. Why should we not lie to one another? Why should we lay aside anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, abusive speech. He's going to tell us why. And what we find, again, is just the foundation of Christian living. But now Paul uses a different word picture. It's especially helpful. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. And why should you as Christians live differently from the world? Well, because you're different. You've been made different. That difference was described back in verses 1 and 3 as a death and resurrection. Why should you be different? Well, because you've died with Christ. You've, you've been raised with Christ. It's a big difference. So you should live differently. Now, that same difference is being spoken of in verses 9 and 10, just a different word picture, different imagery. And so here, what happened to us? Well, what's the difference? You have laid aside the old self, and meanwhile, you have put on the new self. Put off the old, put on the new. That's what you've done. That's your difference. And let's talk about these. At first, he says, you have laid aside the old self. A term for laid aside literally refers to just taking off some garment, article of clothing, and putting it away. It's kind of like when you have a new baby, and you're burping that baby over your shoulder. And that baby just decides to spit up all over your nice new jacket. And I mean all over. And so you proceed to gently put down that baby, and you're going to take off that dirty jacket and put it aside. And yes, that happened. It was Olivia. She was like under one or something like that. It was all over my nice new jacket. But likewise here, you know, regarding your old self, you, you put it off. You lay it aside. It's, it's away from you. This air is tense. It's a decisive action. The old self, literally it says the old man, like ragged, tattered, soiled clothes. It's, it's stripped away and removed from you. This is a reference to your old, unregenerate self, yourself under Adam. That was enslaved to sin and to Satan. That self was characterized by one thing, he says, evil practices. That's what characterized your old self. That's who you were. But that self is gone. It's been laid aside. And instead, you have put on the new self. Maybe you've seen some of those videos or like news stories where uh, someone takes a homeless man, he, he's given a, a makeover before being given a new job. It's a nice thing. He's given a shower, a shave, a haircut. But unless something is done about his old you know, putrid clothes, it's all for naught. And so his old clothes are trash. He's given a, a brand new, nice, clean suit. It looks like a new man. Similarly, we've put on new clothes. Not literally, but it's talking about a new self a new identity. This is the putting on of the regenerate self, no longer under Adam, but under Christ. This is that identity change, that position change that we've been learning about, where we're given a new nature. Now, at this point, a common question always comes up when you, when you study this put off, put on teaching here or Ephesians 4. I always get this question. We've heard of this put off, put on language before, but but people wonder, like, is this something we're being told to do? Or is this something that's already happened to us, you know, once for all? Like, it's a done deal. Like, we, we already have put off of the old and put on the new and just done. 
Or are we supposed to progressively put off the old, put on the new, like all throughout life? Which is it? Are we like 50% old, 50% new, or, or what? Many people wonder because part of us sure still feels old, like the old self. And to answer this, you just need to once again understand that tension between the already and the not yet of the Christian experience. So let me clarify one more time. So what Paul is expressing here in these verses has already happened. So yes, this is a done deal. He's talking about a positional reality, an identity change that took place at salvation. Your old self died, was buried. It's gone with Christ and a new self has arisen. This new self arose via regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Salvation per the new covenant, it's a transformation. It's a regeneration where your old heart of stone was removed and you're given a new heart of flesh. You gain a new nature. You just don't find in the Bible language of an incomplete regeneration or a 50-50 regeneration. But if that's the case, I know what you're still wondering. You're thinking that if we're so new, how come part of us feels like the old self? How come part of us still wants to sin? Why must we be told to put away sexual sin, put off social sin? If we're so new, like why? What gives? Well, although we are regenerate in spirit, and we're new in heart, some oldness remains. Where? Well, in our earthly bodies. And Paul especially refers to this as the flesh. And our bodies are not inherently evil, but they are inherently weak. They're easily taken captive and cursed. The flesh then is still under sin's power. It's unredeemed. You have to understand that God made us as two-part beings. We feel like one, but you're two. You are physical and spiritual, your body and soul. And before salvation, both were cursed. Your soul was fallen, your body was fallen, and cursed and corrupt and depraved. That salvation, your inner man, your, your spirit is remade. But the outer man is untouched. Nothing changes with your physical nature at salvation. And so that's why it says the inner man is being renewed, but the outer man is is still decaying. Our bodies are still corrupt. They're still sin cursed. And that's where our ongoing sin resides. But the thing is, since our bodies and our souls are intertwined, it's not like you can just separate the two. Since we're intertwined, our sinful lusts and desires, they they sure still feel like they're a part of us, that they are us, but they're not us anymore. On your own, you can read Romans 7, 14 through 25. But there Paul testifies for the believer that, that sin no longer dwells in the inner man. We're still sinners, but it no longer dwells in the inner man. It dwells in the flesh, he says, in the members of our body. That's why, Romans 8, 23, we long and we groan for the redemption of our bodies, not souls. They've already been redeemed and reborn, but not our flesh. And 
that's, that's holding us back. And we, we, we long for that to be redeemed as well. We desire to be set free from this body of death. He says in Romans 7, we want to escape this earthly tent and habit a new one that is likewise glorified, has no more sinful urges and desires. And one day Christ's salvation will extend to our bodies. And so the Bible talks about this future resurrection. That's what's happening. You're, you're given a reborn, brand new physical body to accompany your already reborn spirit. That's yet future But in this life, we must contend with the sin in our members. And that includes the passions, drives, and desires of our human nature, which have all been twisted and corrupted by the fall. And so like the best example is just from sexual sin from last week. Because we know that there's a physical component to our sexual desires. Just think about hormones, for example. And you know what? God created us with these before the fall as good. These desires were meant to be good and they were given a a holy expression in the covenant of marriage. But after the fall, our souls were corrupt. So were our bodies that affected our our physical nature. And our bodies no longer function as intended. Not for one, they're all, they're decaying. They're going to die. But even their their function, their desires are, are corrupt. And our inner desires, therefore, which, which may have a physical component, they're warped, they're depraved, and it leads to sinful actions. But this, again, explains the tension of Christian living. We are new in spirit, in the inner man. That, that's who you are now. That's your identity, verses 1 through 4. God sees you according to your heavenly position. Like Rod said, your heavenly citizenship. Your, that's where your name is. That's how God sees you. You're enrolled there by Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive to righteousness. But your outer man is still just dead. It's corrupt. It's defiled. And although our spirit is no longer enslaved to sin, the twisted desires of our body can easily tempt us, ensnare us, and lead us back into sin. And this is why we groan. We cry out, desperately waiting to be free waiting for the redemption of our bodies. In our minds, we don't want to sin anymore. We, we don't want to dishonor God. We don't want to do those things anymore. We want to pursue the Lord and his righteousness. If you don't have those inner longings, a desire for God, a hatred of sin, if you don't have anything on the inside saying that, the Bible would question whether you're born again. But, As long as we remain in the flesh, herein lies the call to put to death the sin that remains and follow Christ. We're to make no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts. At least don't feed the thing. Don't feed your flesh anymore. And instead, Romans 13, 14, put on Christ. And functionally, you know, the way this works, again, as we've been learning, we, we, we feed the spirit, we feed our new self and those desires by renewing the mind, by being renewed in the spirit of our mind, that the new man might overpower the flesh and the desires of the flesh. In fact, Paul references this ongoing renewal in verse 10. And if you're still in Colossians 3, look at verse 10. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed 
to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And you see there, who is being renewed in verse 10? What is being renewed in verse 10? It's not the old self. The old self is dead and gone. There's no reforming. There's no rehabilitating the old self. It must die and be replaced by a new self. You know, during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther originally he was in the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church from within. And even his uh, 95 Theses, they were intended to start a dialogue with the Pope that reform might happen from within. But soon it became clear the Catholic Church was so just corrupt and dead and hopeless that he had to leave. It had to be abandoned completely, a rebirth needed to take place. And so really the Protestant Reformation should really be titled the Protestant Rebirth. It was the new church going back to the original church, but it was a rebirth. And that said, when it comes to our rebirth, once we're reborn, born again, made new, we're alive, but that doesn't mean we're instantly mature. We're reborn, but you start off as a baby. We come alive at salvation, but, but like a baby, and so we need to grow. You know, a baby versus a soldier is no contest in a battle. Or a baby even versus a five-year-old is still no contest. And see, when you come to salvation, especially if you've lived long in the world, your flesh is mature, it's strong, it's armed, it's seasoned. And you're alive now, you have the spirit, you have a new nature, but it's like an infant. So you better grow if you want to start overpowering the lust of the flesh so that they don't lead you into sin. And that growth or renewal comes by God's word. First Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Or like Paul puts it here in verse 10, This new self is being renewed to or according to a true knowledge of God. You know, it's this true knowledge of God that was lost in the fall as our, our minds were darkened. But it's this true knowledge of God, which is found in scripture, that we must fill our minds with if our new self is to grow up into Christ's image. And speaking of this image here, it is Christ's image. Our old self was patterned after Adam corrupted by the fall, but this new self on the inside, it's patterned after Christ. Christ himself, Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. And we've been remade into Christ's image on the inside. And see, now though, God leaves us behind on this earth because he, he's glorified when, when that image of Christ comes out on the outside, when it directs our behavior, when it directs our steps. And so, really, there you have it again. What's the foundation of Christian living? It's just, it's Christ. It's our new life and our new identity in him. That's who we are now. We've been remade in his image and by his grace, and we are to live that out for the rest of our days. And your success in that will be directly tied to, well, how much you renew and grow your new self and your new desires. Well, I know that was kind of a whirlwind on the mechanics of spiritual growth. Really, it's like the third time we've covered this now in, in parts. So I hope it's starting to, to sink in and get it straight. 
Because you need to know this and, and then to actively pursue this renewal. That is our part. Like Ephesians 4.23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be transformed by renewing your mind. Set your mind on things above. And as you do that, as you live out the ethics of Christian living, built atop the foundation of Christian living, you'll find a most important byproduct, and that is the unity of the church. This is a good place to finish, so just look at verse 11 real quick here. He says in verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul finishes this thought by, by fleshing out the implications of the foundation and the ethics of Christian living. And most notably is unity. This supernatural unity in the church. And what is the church? It's simply the collection of all the redeemed. All those people who have been remade on the inside. All, all come together in Christ's image. There are the people who have received a new identity because they've been united to Christ by faith. But the thing is, when you're united to Christ, that actually means you're also united to everyone else who's united to Christ. This is the unity of the church. What he's saying here is, as we are renewed and, and built up into his image, well, our identity in Christ obliterates all of our old distinctions. He says in this new order, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised. I mean, you know, the Greeks looked down on the Jews and the Jews returned the favor. They hated the Gentiles. They would not even step foot in a Gentile house. These people groups hated each other. And together, they all hated the barbarians and the Scythians. Barbarians, just a term the Greeks used to mock those who didn't speak Greek. You know, these uncivilized people who don't speak Greek, they're not of our high culture. They just look down upon them. And even worse were the Scythians. These were the people, the barbarians themselves despised. They were extremely savage. They were thought no better than wild beasts. And then, of course, you have the, the chasm in the ancient world between slave and free. But you think about all these divisions, racial, religious, cultural, social. And these all represent these impenetrable high walls that divide people. And in the world, they still do. But in Christ, these walls all come crashing down. Now, of course, there's still such a thing as ethnicity and gender and rank in the church. But the point is, these differences no longer separate us. They no longer speak to our value or worth. They don't make you better or worse. God's grace is colorblind, and there's only level ground at the foot of the cross. And so, since we're all one in Christ. Since we all share his identity, we should be united with one another and show the same grace to one another as well. As one commentator put, iron curtains, class distinctions, partisanship, all that which divides us is simply no match for the tie that binds us, and that's Christ. But he says at the end, Christ is all and in all, what did we learn in chapter 1 of Colossians? Christ made all things. He sustains all things. He's remade us. He indwells us. 
It's all about him. Life, new life, it's about him. And so now when God looks at us, the way God sees things, there's only one distinction that matters. Only one distinction. In Christ, not in Christ. That's all that matters. In Christ, not in Christ. That comes by faith in him. And now that's the only part of your identity that truly matters. At least eternally speaking, that's all that matters. That's the only distinction that matters. You're either in Christ by faith or you're not. But he is our life. And so who are you? If we had to capture your identity with 500 words, you know, for the the true Christian now, that'd be easy. Right? All the stuff that makes us unique as individuals, yeah, that's fine. But that no longer truly identifies us or defines us. Ethnicity, language, gender, relationships, hobbies, activities, jobs, careers. Yeah, that's a part of who we are in this life, but that's no longer who we really are. That no longer captures our, our essence. Now we need only a few words to describe our identity. We are Christians. Followers of Jesus Christ, those remade in his image, those united to him and his people. But he now is our treasure and he now is life's purpose. And so when it is time for us to go, I suffice it to say in our obituary, Philippians 121, we only need a few words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I hope this can be said of you. Let's pray. Our gracious God, this this needs to be our our resolve and our identity as well. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And Christ is our treasure. He's the pearl of great price, the one of infinite worth. He's the maker. God the Son, the Savior, our Redeemer. Lord, we once were We're dead and gone, body and spirit. We were entirely lost, corrupt, enslaved to sin and Satan, bound for a first death and a second death, an eternal death for the wages of sin is death. You would have been just to remove us forever from your holy presence. But we we praise you. We need to remember your, your grace, your kindness in sending Christ the Savior to remake us, to save us, body and soul. And through his death and resurrection, we are entirely redeemed. Now we get the the joy of experiencing that on the inside. You've made us truly new in spirit. And we long for the day when we'll be made new on the outside for the resurrection. But until then, Lord, you've left us for a purpose to to serve you, to worship you, to witness you, and, and to glorify you by letting who we are on the inside just come out, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling and convict us of these truths, instruct us, Help us to build our lives, not just on culture or custom, but on just the foundation of Christian living and that we would live out the the relationship and the identity we have with Christ and that that we would be built up and united and that all the world might know that's the power of Christ, that this new birth is supernatural. There's no other explanation. So empower us by your spirit. Help us to renew our minds and set them continually on Christ, who is our life. In his name we pray. Amen.